Death is a fundamental human experience. Death unites all humans in all place at all time, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what socioeconomic class. But death isn't something we think about as often as we probably should. Many of us in the West can actually afford to live most of our lives as if death isn't really our problem. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. When the reality of death is far from your mind, the promises of Jesus will seem detached from your life. This morning, we continue our studies in the gospel according to Luke. And this morning, we find Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, the Lord of heaven and earth, coming face to face with death itself. What happens when the Lord over death attends a funeral? Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. This is what Scripture says. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when he saw, when, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man set up and began to speak And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. My prayer for each one of us is that we would, in this passage, behold Christ and that Christ, by his spirit, would help us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. So some passages in the Bible are going to teach you to do certain things and other passages in the Bible are helping you see Christ. This is one of the latter. Luke begins in verse 11 by setting the scene like he always does. Soon afterward, we're told he goes to a town called Nain. And we're told that a a great crowd and his disciples followed Jesus. Verse 11. So Jesus, soon afterwards, probably a few days later, after this incident that we just read about with the healing of the centurion's servant in the previous verses, he leaves Capernaum. In the north, his home base of operations, right right there on the Sea of Galilee. And he travels south, southwest to a little town called Nain. 
This was about 25 miles away. So this was a, a full day's walk, a full day of walking all the way to Nain. Nain was located in the Jezreel Valley. So it was on the slope of a hill. If you look in your, you know those maps in your back of your Bible that you never look at? If you, ever, if you look at them sometimes, you'll notice that Nain was in the Jezreel Valley on this hill called Moray. And if you know your Old Testament, you, you know, I, I know something about Moray. That was exactly where Abraham was. Remember in Genesis 12, when God said to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, on the other side of the hill of Moray, names over here on the other side of the hill, there was a place called Shunem. And there in Shunem, a long time earlier, there was a prophet named Elisha that we just read about earlier who raised the only son of a woman who this, one, this little boy had died. And so that's where Jesus is going. And what happens when he arrives at Nain, he, he, he's walking on foot. Most likely he left in the morning. It would have taken him all day to get there. And so this great crowd of folks follow him, which is kind of bizarre because he doesn't tell them where they're going or why they're going. Jesus just gets up in the morning and heads for Nain and everybody follows him. Now, right when Jesus arrives, perfect timing, he arrives on the outskirts of Nain and there's a funeral procession coming out of the gate in the front of the city. Now, given the distance Jesus traveled, it's likely around twilight. That was when Jewish funerals typically occurred. at The end of the day, right before the dark. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Now, these mourners are kind of passing along like a train a train of sorrow. They're, they're taking this young man, we're told later, to bury him. His corpse is being carried out. If you've just read your New Testament, you know a thing or two about Jewish wedding or Jewish funerals already. So if you just read your New Testament, you learn some things about Jewish funeral customs in the first century. Given the warm climate in Israel, you didn't keep a dead body for a couple days. You typically buried the person the day they died. Because of the heat, it the body would begin, obviously, to stink. And so once death occurred, the funeral happened pretty rapidly. There was no embalming of the body. That was done in Egypt, but the Jews didn't do that. So you remember, Lazarus was buried the same day he died, and our Lord Jesus was buried the same day he died. Jews who were wealthy, like Joseph of Arimathea, they could have somebody uh, uh, hew out a, a cave, uh, a, a tomb in the stone, or they actually owned land that had caves. That's what the wealthy Jews would do. Those who were poor would just dig a hole in the ground, maybe put some stones on top. Typically, the body of a deceased person was washed, maybe anointed with oil before burial. And they were carried to the funeral, notice, on a, a bier, B-I-E-R. That's, kids, if you don't know what that is, I didn't know what it was either. So I, I had to look it up. This is a stretcher. This is like a, a, an open coffin. The person is carried along on this wooden plank to their funeral. 
Usually, Jewish families would hire professional mourners. That is, typically it was often women who would wail. The the families would pay them to wail and to weep. They would even play dirges. This is referenced later in Luke chapter 7. Jesus himself references this when he's talking to John the Baptist. They would wail and play dirge music to indicate the great sorrow of the family that was mourning. Now listen, I've read the Bible many times. This is probably the saddest funeral recorded in Scripture. Look at verse 12. A man who had died was being carried out. Then notice, notice this. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. So not only is this poor mother grieving the loss of her child. We're told that he was her only son. So on top of all this catastrophic grief, we're told that she's also a widow. Her husband is dead. She's buried him. She's probably already made this same march before. But at least she had her son by her side. But now she's walking at the head of this funeral procession. And she's walking alone. No family, no children. Widows, you know, were the most vulnerable in Israel. That's why God has such a heart for widows. They didn't have any social safety net. Their children, their sons especially, were those who were to care for them when their husband died. But given the loss of her only son, she has no one to protect, no one to provide for her. She's, in essence, an orphaned parent. The family line died when her only son died. So she's not only going to her son's funeral, her only son's funeral. In a sense, she's going to her own funeral. She's mourning the death of her son and she's mourning her future. She's going to bury her son, her only son, next to her husband. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, when the prophets would describe the pinnacle of pain, given the the emphasis on sons and the inheritance that would be passed down through sons. When the prophets describe mourning at its highest, they use this image. Jeremiah 6, 26. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Amos chapter 8, verse Ten, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. This is the day of judgment on Israel. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and make it like the mourning of an only son. The town recognizes this, don't they? You see in the text, the whole town comes out to mourn with this woman. Now, it's at precisely this moment, brothers and sisters, Jesus arrives on the scene. And notice in verse 13, we actually discover the reason he traveled this far. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her 
and said to her, do not weep. Luke wants us to understand that the Savior made this day-long journey to Nain in order to show compassion on this widow. Jesus came to see her. Jesus came to show mercy to her. Jesus, out of this whole crowd, who does he see? He sees one person. He sees her. He speaks to her. He says, do not weep. Now just, that's, when you read that, doesn't that blow your mind? Can you imagine going up to the, the mother who's leading the, the funeral procession and saying, stop crying? That would be unloving if we didn't know what was, what was about to say and what he was about to do. But knowing, knowing the heart of Christ Even those words, stop weeping, are coming from a heart of compassion, a heart of infinite compassion. Did you notice, you may have missed it. Look at verse 13 again. Did you see what Luke calls Jesus? When the Lord saw her. You see that? Now, in Luke's gospel so far, demons have called Jesus Lord. Angels have called Jesus Lord. John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, and a leper, and a centurion have all called Jesus Lord. And now Luke, as the narrator of this gospel, says, when the Lord saw her. This is the Lord. This is his mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, his compassions never come to an end. And what does he do? Verse 14, he comes up and touches the open coffin. And the bearers, the pallbearers, stop. He, 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 gets, he, he comes up to the woman. She's leading the procession. He speaks to her. Then he goes up to the coffin and just stops the funeral in its tracks. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to notice all of these narrative details that Dr. Luke drops into this account. These are, these are completely needless details unless it's a historical account. A great crowd near the gate touched the bier, and the pallbearer stood still. This grieving widow is watching all this happen. But then notice something shocking. Jesus touches. He touches. The stretcher that's carrying the dead body. You don't touch anything dead. Remember in Numbers 19. You touch a dead body, you're unclean. You're ceremonially unclean. But it's not a sinful Israelite who's touching the dead body. (laughs) It's the Holy One of Israel in the flesh. Jesus touches this dead corpse and he halts the whole funeral. And look what he says in verse 14. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, Arise. The poor widow doesn't ask for anything. There's nothing in this passage like the centurion. There's no, there's no, I believe in you, Jesus. There's no, would you please do this for me? There's no acknowledgement from the crowd that they even know who Jesus is. 
But Jesus simply addresses the corpse of this young man and he commands him, young man, get up. I say that to my son sometimes in the morning before school. (laughs) Young man, get up. He's talking to this dead boy like you would talk to someone who's who's overslept. Young man, it's time to get up. He simply speaks. Verse 15, what happens? Now, remember, Dr. Luke's writing this. He doesn't want you to misunderstand. The boy wasn't asleep. Notice what he says in verse 15. And the dead man set up. (laughs) Now, those are some interesting words. The dead man (laughs) set up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. I wonder what that boy began to say to his mother. And are there any more compassionate words in this passage than those words Jesus gave him to his mother? Those words gave him to his mother, those those are verbatim from 1 Kings 17, which described what Elijah did when God raised a son from the dead through his ministry. He gave him to his mother. Jesus says here, Here's your son, your only son, alive. Now, can you imagine, just for a minute, imagine that reunion. Tears of mourning are replaced by tears of joy. Instead of a funeral, the whole town had gathered for a party. It wasn't a time for mourning anymore. It was a time to celebrate Fire all the wailing women. Fire them all. Take the day off. It's time to celebrate because this, my son, was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost forever. And now he's in my arms. Now, what, what are we supposed to make of this? This is a short passage, but but there's so much going on in this passage. Look at the response. Look at verses 16 and 17. There's something in verses 16 and 17 that informs how we must respond to this passage. How did those who witnessed this event respond? Look at verse 16. First, they respond in worship. Look at verse 16. Worship. Fear. Your Bible may say dread, panic, seized them, and they glorified God. You see that? Saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. So don't make make, make no mistake. They see the work that Christ performed. They, They claim that he is a great prophet. And they acknowledge that God is working through this man. Now, both of those are true and both of those fall short of the praise Jesus actually deserves. Nevertheless, look at verse 17. They don't just worship. There's also witness. Verse 17, witness. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
You can imagine they had a story to tell after this, right? Now, I just want to draw your attention to three obvious features of our Lord's person, that is who he is in himself and his work, what he did in this passage. I want to draw your attention to three features of his person and his work from this text that ought to fuel our worship and our witness of him. Listen, you will not commend to others what you do not delight in. If Listen, if I talk to you and you just keep telling me about your kids, you know what I know when I talk to a dad who just goes on and on about their kids, who's like, hey, look at my look at what my kid did. Do you know what I you know what you're communicating? You're communicating. I delight in my children. That's what you're communicating. When you tell me about you got a new job and you just go on and on about all the new responsibilities, you're telling me I really delight in this job. You will not open your mouth and talk about Jesus if you're not impressed with him, if you don't delight in him, if you aren't enamored in how glorious he is. So this passage is fuel for you to understand this is how glorious Jesus is. And that ought to inform and fuel our witness of him. This is kindling for worship and for witness. First thing I want you to see, number one, the Lord's, listen, Sovereign purpose, the Lord's sovereign purpose ought to fuel your worship and your witness of him. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that that the raising of this dead man in Nain, it actually reveals his sovereign purpose. He woke up that morning knowing he was going to go to Nain. He left early to get there precisely on time. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus is never late. He's never late. He's never late. He knew precisely when to leave Capernaum early in the morning to get there precisely when that poor widow was going to walk right by him. Jesus woke up that that morning with a funeral to cancel. He had one thing on his agenda. Cancel a funeral in name. Jesus doesn't need to use Waze or Google Maps to get to a place on time. So let this be an encouragement. Some of us in this room are living our lives like Jesus is late. Jesus is always in control. No one can thwart his good and glorious purposes for those who trust him. Think about this. There was another funeral that Jesus went to. He went to a funeral of one of his closest friends, Lazarus. And what did his sisters tell him? Lord, Lord, you're late. If, if, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus looked at her and said, oh, I'm sorry I was late. That's not what he said. <laughs> he looked her right in the eyes and said, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is never late. His timing is better than yours. His timing is better than mine. Trust his timing this morning. Trust his sovereign purpose. Trust that he whose hands were pierced on the cross are holding the scepter of the universe and he's working all things together for your good, beloved. He's working all things together for his glory and your everlasting good. So you can trust him. You can wait on him because his timing is perfect. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the the end from the beginning. Trust his timing. Trust his sovereign purpose. One of my favorite hymn writers, a man who struggled with depression his whole life, wrote these words. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Number one, the Lord's sovereign purpose ought to, ought to fuel your worship and witness of him. Number two, number two, the Lord's tender compassion. The Lord's tender compassion ought to fuel your worship and witness of him. This Luke 7, if you can understand and, and get Luke 7 in your soul, you will grasp by God's grace the whole point of the gospel according to Luke. Luke 7 is like a miniature portrait of the whole gospel. Think about what we find in Luke's gospel. It starts with his tender compassion toward a Gentile and a centurion and his servant. Then we have this passage where he shows tender compassion towards this grieving widow in name. And the conclusion of the passage at the end of Luke 7, Jesus is showing loving, tender compassion toward a forgiven prostitute. What's the point of Luke? He came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That's the good news of Luke's gospel. And that's what we see here. Jesus came, according to Zechariah earlier in Luke, we were told to show the mercy promised to our fathers. So if you keep your eye on Jesus all the way through Luke's gospel, do you know what God is showing you? He's saying, this is what my mercy looks like. He's showing us the promised mercy of God. Jesus is the one that God revealed himself to be. Remember to Moses, who am I? I'm the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what this passage is, is saying about his mercy is this, the boundless Compassion of Christ is greater than even the sorrow that death has brought into the world. Listen, this is like a picture of what Jesus is going to do on the last day. Christian, just like Jesus dried up the widow who was mourning outside the gates of Nain, one day he's going to throw a funeral for death. And he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. This is like a preview of coming attractions. Listen, this passage also shows us the scope of his mercy. 
There is no one who is beyond the reach of the mercy of Christ. His death conquering compassion is for all. Male, centurion, Jewish widow. Rich, centurion, perhaps poor widow. Mighty, meek, Jew, Gentile, old, young. There is no one. There is no one disqualified from casting herself before the Lord and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. None. Do you hear in those, when you hear those words, the Lord saw her and had compassion on her. I've given you all, I've given you all gospel according to Luke's. These should go with you everywhere, okay? If If you don't have some, come talk to me afterwards. You should be reading the gospel of Luke because you should hear those words and think, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Where have you heard that in Luke's gospel? A few chapters later, what are we told about the Samaritan? When a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was on the side of the road and he saw him and had compassion on him. And then a few chapters later, Jesus tells this story of the prodigal son. And what are we told about the father? While he was still a far way off, the father, what? Saw him and had compassion on him. So what does that mean? What is Luke communicating? The loving, merciful heart of the father and the heart, the heart of the, of the Samaritan is pictured for us in the heart of Christ. He saw her and had compassion on her. Now, brothers and sisters, the application for us is we can't raise people from the dead, but we can show mercy just like Jesus commanded. Be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. Now, as I stared at this passage this week, I was convicted of my failure to see and then to show mercy. I was reminded several years ago, I was taking a theology class at the University of Oxford, really fancy. And on my day to class one day, I was coming around the corner and right as I turned around the corner, there was a beggar standing right in front of me. And I was already kind of late. So you know what I did? Instead of stopping and helping the guy, I just kind of, he asked for money. I made some mumbling response. I don't have any cash or something. Just went right by him. And then I got to the end of the, the block as I was about to go into the lecture hall. And it was like the Lord was convicting me a little bit. Not enough to go back. So I turn around. And you know what I saw? The guy that I was going to hear give the lecture was kneeling by the beggar. He had his hand on his shoulder. He was giving him some money and praying with him. You see, it wasn't that I didn't see the guy. I didn't see him. 
The guy that I was going to hear teach, he saw him. And he had compassion on him. And I tell you the truth, I don't remember a single thing the guy said in that lecture. I'd already gotten the lecture outside. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling us first and foremost to see those who are hurting around us. Oh, God, give us eyes as a church to see. Give us eyes as a church to see those who are hurting, who are suffering, and then to show compassion. Listen, if your heart this morning is cold or indifferent towards the hurting of others, do you know what the Lord wants you to do? He wants you to look at the heart of Christ. Do you know how? Do you know the only cure for a cold heart is to see the heart of Christ? Robert Murray McChain said this, the only cure for a cold heart is to look at the heart of Jesus. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So Christian, remind yourself this morning that you have a Savior who is the same Savior who gave compassion to this widow outside name. He's your Savior this morning. Listen to these wonderful words from J.C. Ryle. Quote, Christ's heart is still as compassionate as when he was upon the earth. Amen. His sympathy with sufferers is still just as strong. There is no friend who can compare to Christ. In all our days of darkness, turn for consolation to the Son of God. He will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. He will never refuse to take an interest in our sorrows. He lives who made the widow's heart sing for joy at the, at the gates of Nain. He lives to receive all those who weary and he, are heavy laden. He lives to heal the brokenhearted. He lives to do greater things than these. He lives to come again that they may have their tears wiped away from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is our Savior. He lives this morning. There is no mercy in heaven and on earth as wonderful as the mercy that is found in the heart of Christ. And his mercy is for you. You woke up this morning and Lamentation says, do you know what greeted you? Fresh new mercies. So let us, by his grace, be a church that sees the hurting around us and among us. And then let's seek to show compassion. Let's ask God to change our hearts. Number three, and we're done. So we see the Lord's sovereign purpose. We see the Lord's tender compassion. But then thirdly, and obviously the most clearly one in this passage is the Lord's almighty power. The Lord's almighty power ought to fuel your worship and your witness. If there's anything in the passage of the centurion, we saw Christ's authority over disease. And in this passage, he demonstrates his authority over the greatest enemy we have in this world, which is death. He's able to stop death in his tracks. 
Don't you love it? When Jesus shows up at a funeral in the New Testament, it turns into a party. <laughs> That's a hint, right? That's a hint. He shows up and it, it, it's not a funeral for long. And I love the fact that he transforms these funerals into welcome home parties. Psalm 68 says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, exult before him. And then you're thinking, why should we praise this glorious God who rides through the desert, who's sovereign and glorious? Very next verse. He is the father of the fatherless. And he is the protector of widows. How does he use his sovereign power? The one who has almighty power. He uses it to defend widows. Notice something else. I mentioned earlier that Numbers 19 described if you touch a corpse, you become ceremonially unclean. So what this passage is teaching, just like the passage where Jesus heals the leper when he touched him. Remember what what this passage is showing is that Jesus is able to do what the law was powerless to do. The law kills. Jesus gives life. The law says you're unclean. Jesus makes you clean. The law declared sinners unclean by touching the dead. But when Jesus touches the dead man, instead of being defiled, he gives him life. And listen, brothers and sisters, whatever, whatever physical trial you're going through right now, if you're in Christ, there is nothing that a resurrection won't fix. We have a savior who is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And yet he is gentle and lowly and loves for sinners to come to him in their times of need. I love the, the, the response of the people was, this is a great prophet. And they were, that was right. Jesus is the great prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet like Moses who was to come. But even by his actions, Jesus is pointing to the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. And he's saying, behold, one greater than Elisha and Elijah is here. He is the one that the prophets pointed to. He is the one who is the son of God. Elijah and Elisha prayed to the Lord. And God raised those two boys from the dead. Jesus didn't have to pray. <laughs> he just spoke. He didn't have to pray to the Lord because he is the Lord. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all his starry host, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Raising a child from the dead is not a problem for Jesus. Young man, get up. Last thing, but then we're done. You notice, brothers and sisters, again, this is not just what something that happened. This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on the last day. You realize that? Jesus is going to do the same thing he did at Nain at the end of the age. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And all those who hear will live. 
For an hour is coming that all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John chapter five. With a single word, rise. Every human being who has ever lived on the face of the earth will be raised from the dead and will stand before the judgment seat of this Christ. This is a preview of what's to come. The trumpet will sound and at the cry of command, the dead will rise and face judgment. Are you ready today to face the judgment on that day? The only way that we're ready is by trusting in this Christ to be our righteousness on that day. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, this Christ died for us. He did something far greater than raising a child from the dead. He himself laid down his life for sinners And then he rose from the dead three days later. He demonstrated he is who he has said he was. He presented his sacrifice to the father and it was accepted. And all who trust in Christ, all who receive Christ in the empty hands of faith. He counts as righteous. He gives his spirit. He makes us his children. Friend, call upon him. If you don't know Christ, the Lord Jesus himself, through his word, is saying to you, you can have me. Come to me and I will never cast you out. One last thing. Preachers say one last thing five times. One last thing. I was really encouraged as I meditated on this. I found really strong encouragement for those of us who are parents who have children who are lost. Let this be a reminder, a glorious reminder that even when our children are far from God, they are never far from his omnipotence. With a word The Lord Jesus, by his almighty power, can quicken the deadest of hearts. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. Let us to continue. Let us continue to pray for them. Our young men and our young women may long seem to be traveling on the way to ruin. But let us pray on who can tell. But he that met the funeral at the gates of Nain may yet meet our unconverted children and say with almighty power, young man, young woman, rise. With Christ, nothing is impossible. Finally, those who are trusting in Christ this morning, be encouraged and comforted that the same one who raised the widow's son at the gates of name is in you and will walk with you 
when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will be right by your side. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the power of the devil. And he also preserves me that in such a way, without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair will fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing from now on to live for him. Christian, be comforted with that glorious truth this morning. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you that of all the things we could have in this world that we could lose, including our own life, we can never lose Christ. For those who have trusted in him, father, you promise that we are yours forever. Would you comfort our hearts this morning? Would you help us to see the glory and grace of Jesus and so worship him truly and tell of him rightly? and boldly to a dying world. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's name. Amen.